Turn, if you would, to the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew. We are going to finish the 14th chapter today. I know, you've heard that before. (laughs) Last week we talked about the death of John the Baptist, and we talked about the downward spiral of sin. The fact that Herod uh, ran off with his brother's wife, divorced his wife, she divorced her husband, they got married, and without a repentant heart, they just got deeper and deeper into sin. And we would like to think, we would like to think that God in his mercy will forgive us at any stage of this downward spiral. And that's true. It's true But our hearts are hardened, and as we sin, we become more accustomed to more sin. And that's what Herod and Herod's new wife, it was a mess. So after that, after that, we pick up in verse 20, uh, no, in verse 13. We ended with verse 12 that said, And his, John's, disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus... So, you're Jesus, you're up in the Galilean area somewhere, and here comes John's disciples, and they tell you John's just been killed. Now, what is your first thought? Well, I'm next. That would be a good one. You know, he's coming after me next. There's actually some interesting discussion, because if you remember at the beginning of last week's lesson, Uh, Herod was worried that Jesus was John the Baptist. I don't know how reincarnation works when they're only nine months apart, but it was the spirit of John the Baptist put into Jesus. So Herod thought, he's back, I'd better do something else with him. Or we don't know what. So, verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. He left. He says, I need to get away. I need to get away and pray and think about what I'm supposed to do. We've had this discussion a lot in this class, so I'm just going to touch on it very quickly. The fact that if you know the guys are coming this direction to arrest you for being a Christian, morally speaking, you're perfectly capable of running out that door and running away. Now, if they catch you and they ask you to deny Christ, you can't do that. But prudence says you don't walk into the bear trap if you don't have to. Now, at some point, Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem and say, here I am, Do with me what you will, because he knows what God has in mind for him. But that time is not right now. So upon hearing about John's death, Jesus withdraws to the countryside. It says he goes and finds a desolate place. Many spiritual individuals, when times get difficult, have removed themselves to a time of prayer somewhere away from the mob. The problem is the mob finds Jesus. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So he's out in the wilderness And the people hear, hey, Jesus just showed up. And all the neighboring towns start sending their people to this desolate place to hear Jesus. Why are they doing that? Well, they've heard about him. They have an idea who he is. And they know he's been doing miraculous things. They know his reputation as a healer. So... They come. Now, you're Jesus. You just heard that your mentor, John the Baptist, was executed. You have gone away for a time to pray. 
to be alone with God. It says he wanted to be by himself. And all of a sudden, you're there by yourself, and here comes the crowd. How are you going to feel about that? I know how I feel about this, okay? I'm sitting at home in a chair with a book and a glass of iced tea. And my children think I'm bored. And they want to come talk to me. Why do they do that? And guess what? I put down my book and I talk to them. Jesus wanted, needed time alone to be with God. Now sometimes it's odd to talk that way because we think he didn't need to do it. Yes, he did. We realize, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, we realize that Jesus is fully human. He's also fully God. But he gets tired. He gets worn out. He needs time to recover and to recoup. He needed this time. But here comes the crowd. What's he going to do? Tell them to go away? No. When he, went, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. He saw the crowd, and he had compassion. I've asked this question in here before in different contexts. When you see a crowd, what is the first thing you think about? How do I get away from them? Jesus saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them. We talked about this in the context of Jesus seeing the multitudes and saying they were sheep without a shepherd. He knew they needed something, and he knew he was the person to give it to them. And it says that he healed their sick. They had brought all their sick to him, and he healed them. Now... Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. We just talked about that, right? This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Did we comment about the fact it was a desolate place? Jesus had gone there because it was a desolate place. The people had come, and you can be assured that they heard Jesus is coming to town grab the sick neighbor, carry him, drag him, do whatever it takes to get the sick neighbor, you're pretty confident they weren't thinking about, I'd better take two days of food just in case. They weren't thinking about that. They heard Jesus was there, off they go to see Jesus. And the disciples start worrying because, you know, you got 10,000 hungry people that need to be fed. And the disciples go, Jesus, tell them to all go home. Why? Because we don't have food for 10,000 people. We don't. I don't have food. There's no restaurants. There's no Walmart. There's no nothing. You'd better tell them to go home because when they get hungry, either they're going to be so weak they won't make it home, or they're going to be angry and who knows what they will do to us. Send them home. Now, you know what's going to happen, right? You've read this story before. I'd like to jump aside for just one moment and address another topic. Years, years ago, I was at work and we were having lunch and this youngster was talking and we were talking about, I don't know what started the conversation, and he made the comment, I wouldn't mind believing the Bible if it weren't for all those miracles. <laughs> I mean, as a trained engineer who took lots of science classes, we know that miracles don't happen. So, I would believe the Bible if it weren't for the miracles. You've heard about Thomas Jefferson's version of the Bible, right? Where he took the Bible and he took out 
all the ethical teachings, the good stuff, and he pasted it in a book, and that was his Bible. Because we know the miracles didn't happen, right? But Jesus had lots of really good teaching. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is great stuff. Let's use that ethical teaching, but let's ignore all this writings, all this discussion about miraculous events. Jesus has been doing miraculous things since he showed up on the scene. He's been healing people. He's been raising the dead. He's been doing miraculous things. But here we're going to do a couple of things because we're going to talk about feeding the 5,000 and we're going to talk about Jesus walking on the water. Now, I don't know how you do either one of those in any scientific way, with any scientific explanation. I have actually read people who suggested that Jesus was sitting at the edge of a cave with his loaves and his fishes and breaking them up. And while he was doing that, the disciples were behind him slipping food to him. And that's how they made it appear that he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. Why is it that we have trouble believing in the miraculous? We have trouble because we are, we are trained to live in a materialistic world. And when I say materialistic, I'm not saying we want more stuff, although that's very true. What I'm saying is that we have been brought up that if I can't touch it, it doesn't really exist. Science has become the arbiter of truth. If science can't answer the question, it isn't real. And if you dispute that, which I'm going to do, if you dispute that, you must be anti-science or anti-intellectual or something like that. Well, I will tell you, I'm not anti-science at all. But I do believe that this world consists of more than what we can touch at any given time. Science is convinced that this universe as we know it is a closed system. By that I mean this. I don't know if you've ever had a terrarium. The goal of a terrarium is to have enough stuff in there that will produce oxygen so that the bugs will live, so the bugs will produce carbon dioxide, which will feed the plant, and it's a cycle. Nothing outside that is needed for life to live inside the terrarium. There have been several cases where I think very rich people have funded human experiments at living in a closed system. They built a big dome, they put the people inside of there, they had the right mixture of plants and people and animals and food and water and they recycled everything and they didn't do it. They just couldn't. You just couldn't get that mix right. But the scientist is convinced that the world is that way. Now, I might add, if you really want your head to explode, you can start looking at quantum physics and all that and the multiverse and all the possible universe. I mean, that will cause your head to explode as they try to figure out how this closed system works. But we don't believe in a closed system. We believe that God, who is outside the created order, spoke this world into existence. In fact, the person who did that is the guy right here who's going to start breaking bread. And guess what? He spoke the universe into existence. He can create bread out of bread all day long. We believe, I believe, that God sustains the universe at every moment in time. 
This universe would not exist without him. It would not continue to exist without him. He maintains it at all times. And he has the ability to step into the world and do miraculous things. This is actually perfectly rational to believe. If I believe that it is a closed universe and all there is is material stuff, matter and energy switching back and forth, if I believe that, then it is irrational to believe that there's something outside that. But if I believe in the existence of a spiritual realm, a spiritual world, the fact that that spiritual world can interact with the physical world should not surprise us. Now, there were or a lot of Christians, so-called, who, I guess by the, the label, were known as deists. What a deist believes is simply this. God made the world, and like a fine pocket watch, he wound it up, and then he set it aside, and now he's not involved in it. Why? Because he made it perfect. Why would he have to step inside of the world if he had created it correctly in the first place? So while they believe in a creator God... They do not believe in a God who intervenes in the affairs of men. But the Bible says that God is continually stepping into this world and doing miraculous things. You can go back anywhere you want in the Old Testament and start working forward and you see God working in this world. Now, that does produce a second question though. If he can, why doesn't he do it all the time? Why do we read about these miraculous events in the scripture and I go home and I pull a loaf of bread off the shelf and I start breaking it and guess what I end up with? Crumbs. I don't feed 5,000 people with it. If God can, why doesn't he all the time? Hmm. We understand that God sending Jesus to the earth validated his ministry by his miraculous events. We understand that Jesus sending the apostles out after his death gave them the power and the authority to do miraculous events in order to authenticate their message. We now have the scripture that tells us what they did. And guess what? It doesn't need to be authenticated. It is the word of God that we have for us. Now, let's make very sure though. Do I believe that God does miraculous things today? And the answer is yes. Do I believe that things happen that you and I cannot explain in any human scientific terms? The answer is yes. Do I believe that there is an apostle walking around who can heal on demand? Probably not. But you know what? I've heard stories of things in the mission field that I'm not going to try to explain in any human terms. God is still at work in this world. God is still doing the miraculous. So, what is the conclusion of this? We're going to see two miracles here that defy the laws of physics. Does that mean they're anti-scientific, anti-rational? The answer is no. It simply means that we acknowledge the fact that God can and does step into this universe to do what he wants to do. God's going to accomplish his mission. So, the disciples come to Jesus 
and say, we've got 10,000 people who are going to faint because they're hungry. They're hungry, they're tired, they need to go home. Otherwise, we're going to have a hungry mob on our hand. And Jesus does the most natural thing in the world. He turns to the disciples and say, okay, you feed them. Now, you're one of the disciples. There's 12 of you, you and 11 of your best buds. You know how much food you have on you, right? And you're not about to share that with somebody else. And you start looking at each other. And you go, did he just tell us to feed 10,000 people? Surely he was joking. He told us to do something that there is no way we can do. Let me jump way ahead in the story. Not just this story, but way ahead in the story. Jesus, before he ascends, he tells his apostles, his disciples, go and change the world. And guess what? I'm going to give you the power to do that. And guess what? Historically, they did it. Eleven incompetent disciples will kick Jesus off the boat at that point, right? Eleven incompetent disciples are going to change the world. Why? Because the Son of God just told them to do something, and the Son of God is going to give them the power to do it. But that's going to come later. Right now, all they see are empty pockets and hungry people. There is no provision, and there's a huge need. And Jesus just talked to them and said, you go feed them. But Jesus said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now, this is the Matthew account. We know in one of the other accounts that they didn't even have five loaves and two fish. They had to steal that from a little boy. Okay, borrow it. Okay, he gave it to them. Whatever. It is interesting We have four gospel presentations, and there are actually very few miracles that are recorded in all four of them. This happens to be one of them. It's recorded in all four of the gospels. So they come to Jesus and say, okay, I've got five loaves, okay? And, you know, we're thinking loaves. We're not thinking loaves, right? These are not Mrs. Baird's trucks full of bread. This is some boy's lunch that they just took from the little boy. We won't go there. And he, Jesus, said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So, disciples go feed them. No way. Can't be done. I mean, at best... After we mugged this little boy, we've got five loaves and two fish. It keeps getting worse, right? (laughs) We have five loaves and two fish. Even if we wanted to, this would be a snack for the 12 of us, much less feeding all these people. And Jesus says, okay, give me whatever it is you've got. I'll work with that. Now, take the people and tell them to go sit down, dinner's coming. Now, you're a disciple. You're a reasonable person. You have survived in the world around reasonable people, right? You know what's up. You know that there's no food. You've seen the, you've seen the buffet. 
there's five loaves and two fish. But Jesus just said, go tell the people to wash their hands. We're getting ready for dinner. And what do you do? Well, you tell the people to sit down. At this point in your head, there is no correlation between the need and the provision. There's not any. And Jesus sits there, he takes the loaves and he takes the fish and he raises his face to God and he prays. Now, he doesn't say what he prayed. What do you think he prayed? Thank you for this food that we're all about to eat. Did he pray, Father, let's show him something? I've told you before, right? My parents went for six months to England where my dad was the interim pastor of a small Baptist church, and we went and visited them. And after the service, we went to an elderly lady's house for dinner. And uh, she was there with her kids and their kids and us, and my mother warned me, watch out for the prayer. I said, okay, what's he going to do? We all sit down, we all take hands, rub-a-dub-dub, thank you for this grub, amen, let's eat. That was the prayer. What did Jesus pray? Rub-a-dub-dub, thank you for the grub. We're going to feed them all. Because you see, there wasn't any hesitation on Jesus' part. He knew what the answer was going to be. Why? Because he had complete confidence that God the Father was going to allow God the Son to perform a miracle and feed all these people. Yes, go ahead. Uh huh. He takes whatever it is we have. And he starts from there. You see this throughout the scripture. I mean, we could start listing stories. I mean, God goes to this nothing sheep herder in Midian by the name of Moses and says, come talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says, who the heck am I? I don't even talk very well. I'll be with you. He takes this Gideon guy and says, go fight the bad guys. Are you nuts? Then he does. And guess what? Hey, Gideon, you got too many guys on your team. How can I possibly have too many guys on my team? There's more of them. I don't care. Get rid of your guys. Okay. Why? Because God is going to work in such a way that God will get the glory for what happens. Go ahead, Mike. Christ Chapel. Christ Chapel. No one had an iron Yeah. How many did you start with? A handful of people, and here's Christ's chapel. God is going to use whatever it is we have if we're willing to give it to him. I know what you're thinking. I've got a warehouse of food over here. Well, I don't have a warehouse of food. If I did have a warehouse of food, then yes, I would go help people. But I don't have a warehouse of food. It's just me. Okay, you go ahead. What am I supposed to do? Whatever God tells you to do. But I don't have enough stuff. Let God worry about that. Let God worry about that. What is it that Ted always says? God owns the sheep on a thousand hills, and if he needs some money, he'll just sell some of them. Yes, Paul. They were hungry. Well, I know, but they were sick. 
Uh-huh. He had already done miraculous things. The people were kind of amazed at him. But you see, in our minds, you know, there's sick people over there. And, okay, he's going to heal those. But bread is bread, right? It's a physical thing. I mean, I, I actually did sit here trying to figure out how this worked, right? He's sitting there with a loaf of bread, and he breaks off a piece. And he says, here, take that to somebody. And then he breaks off another piece, and he says, here, take that. And he breaks off another piece. Somewhere, atoms have to be created. Break, 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 break. Atoms, matter has to be created out of nothing. He did that. Once, multiple times, he said, let there be bread, and there was bread. Because he had said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be earth, and there was earth. Let there be plants, and there were plants. Let there be stars, and there were stars. Let there be man and woman, and there were man and woman. I mean, let's, let's be real about this, Okay. He didn't have to start with bread and fish. What's miraculous about that? He starts with whatever you've got. I'll take that. But it's not much. Okay. It's not enough. Okay. Give me that. And he starts feeding them. And you're a disciple. You've got a basket. You're filling a basket. And you're going to... This group of 100 people, here, have some more bread. Here, have some more fish. I don't know where it's coming from, but it's good stuff. And he goes back and gets another basketful. And Jesus is sitting there breaking bread. And he brings it to the next group, and the next group, and the next group. And they get to the end, and guess what? Five loaves, two fish. They end up with 12 baskets left over. Now, you're a disciple. Let's forget about the crowd for a moment. You're a disciple. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. And you're going to go change the world. And you're going to be out there on the mission field. And times are going to be hard. Times are going to be bad. And you're going to have difficulties. And you're going to be prone, like all of us are, to question, is all this real? And you're going to sit there and know, I sat there on that day, at the end of the day, with a basket full of bread and fish. I don't know how he did it, but I know, I know he did it. And whatever my difficulties are, I know that it is in the control and command of God. And if I need bread, I'll have bread. If I need fish, I'll have fish, whatever it is. Because I sat there at the end of the day with a basket of bread. You know, we can speculate what they did with the bread. You know, eat it the next day. That's the obvious answer. If I were them, I would have just sat there and stared at it. I would have. Where did this come from? Pick it up. In modern terms, where did these atoms come from that created this bread? And you know what? You look at that tree, and the same place those atoms came from, these atoms came from. Because we do not live in a closed universe. God spoke, and it came into existence. God broke the bread, and it came to feed 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. We're on the Sea of Galilee. We've had this huge event occur. And now Jesus is finally going to do what he set out to do in the first place, which is pray. And he tells the disciples, get in the boat. You go that way. I'll catch up with you later. Now, this is a strange thing, by the way. You know, you take the only car out of town and I'll catch up with you. 
You take the boat and I'll catch up with you. You know if you're a disciple, you're going, how are you going to get there? What, what, do you want us to come back and get you? At some point in time, shall we come up with a schedule? No, he said, you go that way, I'll catch up with you. Into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, this is God, right? I told you, Jesus is fully human. He is a human being. He has flesh, he has blood. You poke him and blood comes out. But he's also fully God. Every attribute of God is present in the person of Jesus Christ. And you go, how can that be? Doesn't Jesus get hungry? Yes, because he's a human. Do you get hungry? Yes. We are told, and this is a long discussion that we don't have time for, we are told, and this is the picture that I have in my head, that Jesus took those attributes of God, and it's like he set them on the shelf. He still had them. But by submitting to the will of the Father, he did not use them unless God said, use it. And he does, and he's about to. And whenever he does, it scares the bejeebers out of people. So, he is fully God, fully man, the God, I mean the man side of him, gets tired, he's had a difficult time, what does he do? He goes and he prays. God, how are things going? That was pretty cool, wasn't it? Let's do that again sometime. He is praying to God. The disciples are in the boat. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against it. So the boat is out in the water, trying to get its way across the lake. It's a good-sized lake, the Sea of Galilee. But, you know, you should be able to get across it, except the wind is fighting them. They can't make it because of the wind. One time I went canoeing with one of my sons, okay? You've got to picture this. I'm in a canoe. I'm fat. I'm at the back. My lightweight son is at the front. The canoe is like this. And we're going into a wind. And the wind blows the front of the canoe this way, and the wind flows the front. And some very intelligent person, not me, says, put a big rock in the front of the canoe. Because then you lower it, and the, anyway. They're trying to get across the lake. They are trying to, but there's a storm coming, and they can't do it. They are making no progress at all. So they're far enough away from the land that they can't just swim ashore, but they're not making any progress getting across the lake. I think it says that they're far away because we don't want anybody thinking that all Jesus is really doing is waiting in the water, okay? We're not just waiting here. We're in the deep water. We're out in the deep. And in the fourth watch of the night, the fourth watch would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now think about that. They've been rowing a long time. They are tired. They are concerned that they cannot get across this lake. It is 3 a.m. in the morning. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, isn't that exactly what you would do? 
Isn't that exactly what I'm doing? I mean, you've got a storm going, okay? Let's assume that it's dark, but the lightning comes every so often. Or it's just heavy winds and there's a moon. I don't know. And you look out there and here comes some guy walking towards your boat. And you're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He's not swimming. He's not doing the freestyle. He's not doing the breaststroke. He's walking across the water. Once again, you've got to understand my weird th- way of thinking about things. You know, I'm sitting there thinking how you break the bread. and I'm sitting there thinking, is he walking up and down the waves? <laughs> or is he just walking and the waves get out of his way? That's the, these are the kinds of things I worry about all week. <laughs> How? <laughs> so you're in the boat, and you see something out there walking. What is your first assumption? It's a ghost. Now, I think it's interesting. You know, we live in the modern, scientific, rational age. But on the flip side of it, we've so, so, seen so many movies with special effects and all this CG stuff in there. You know, oh yeah, there's a zombie walking across. And we go, okay, that's, I've, I've seen that in some movie. They had not seen any movies. Half of these guys are fishermen. They had spent their life on the water. They had seen people drowned in water. They had seen people flounder in water. They had never seen anybody walk on the water. And here he comes walking toward them. You know, I envision he's up there on the hill praying. And he goes, oh, there's the boat out there. I I can still see it. How does he see it? Well, he's God. I think I'll go help them. And he's walking down the mountain, the hill, and he's walking across the beach, and he just keeps walking. How did he do that? It is a miraculous event. But wait, that's unscientific. As long as you believe we live in a closed world, yes. Now, remember, God is fu- I mean, Jesus is fully human, and he's fully God. The early church actually had a huge debate about this, the nature of Jesus. And there were those who thought that, okay, he was fully human and he was just a really good teacher. Or there were those who thought that he was just a spiritual being. He wasn't real. So when Jesus walked across the beach in the soft sand, if you look behind him, there wouldn't be any footprints because he's not really touching the ground. So, he's just spirit. But we know he's human. Why? Because he was tired. He had to go pray. He had to take care of his spiritual needs. He was both. This is a miraculous event. And he's walking across the water. And it says the disciples were terrified, which you and I would be. Admit it. You would be terrified if he was walking across the water. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. If you read throughout the scripture, the most common words that a spiritual being speak to humans is, don't be afraid. You know the Christmas story, shepherds out in the field, angels show up, and they're terrified, and the angels say, don't be afraid. Why? We're not used to this. We're not used to it. And he says, it is I, which by the way, is the Greek translation of, I am. I'm here me. Somebody said that before in the Old Testament. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. 
Peter is just so much fun. And he, Jesus, said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Woohoo! You've got to admire Peter for at least trying. Peter's sitting there going, I don't know how you're doing this, but if it's really you, you can command me and I'll come out there too. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter climbs out of the side of the boat and he starts walking across the water. What was Peter's profession? A fisherman. How many times in his life had he walked across the water? None. This is cool. He's walking across the water. I know what you're thinking. Is he walking up and down the waves or is he? I don't know. If, if I have to vote, the waves are getting out of Jesus' way. But Peter's walking up and down them. That's just my vote. And he's walking toward Jesus thinking this is cool. But then something happens. He realizes, what the heck am I doing? I was in a perfectly good boat. When our house was being built, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm a good, and you know, I need to be diligent. And they were putting the top of the chimney. I'll climb up on the roof and check it. And I climb up on the roof and I'm going, this roof is really steep. What am I doing up here? And I sat down on my butt and got down as fast as I could. Peter is trying to do what God wants him to do. But all of a sudden, he realizes that he's doing something that's humanly impossible. Nothing in his brain explains how he can do what he's doing. And all of a sudden, instead of looking at Jesus, he starts looking at the water. He starts looking at the storm. He starts looking at the things around him and what happens. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Throughout Jesus' interaction with his disciples, many times he's going to say, O ye of little faith. Now, I'm going to give him some credit. At least he got out of the boat. I'm going to give him some credit. There's lots of people who will get started because, hey, this is really great. And as soon as they get started, it is, what have I gotten myself into? And Jesus says, you are willing to start. Why don't you just keep looking at me? Guess what? I don't know. A farmer throws the seeds, some farm falls on the hard ground. We talked about this several weeks ago. Some far, starts growing, but the worries and cares of this world choke it out. Guess what? There is no shortage of storms in this world. Physical, emotional, spiritual, there is no shortage of storms in this world. Every one of us is old enough to know that. And the question is, are you going to look at the storm or are you going to look at the guy that can control the storm? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. This may be, I'd have to go check, but this may be the only time in the book of Matthew that the disciples actually acknowledge you are the Son of God. Guess what? He stepped into the boat and the storm stopped. Now, we have another story about him commanding the storm to stop, but that's a different story. He just steps in and it stops. And you're a disciple and you're looking around going, what happened? Because we've had this discussion before, right? Basic 
fluid mechanic, uh, dynamics. You're sitting there, you've got all these waves going like this. Even if you stop the source of the energy, the wind, the waves are going to go like this for an hour. Unless the guy who created the water, the guy who created the wind, tells the waves to stop, and they're going to stop. And the disciples acknowledge, surely you are the Son of God. And when he had crossed over, they came to Gesenaret, and when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that he might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. What is the point of today's lesson? Number one, Jesus had compassion on the people. Number two, he had compassion on the disciples. He saw them out in the, the lake struggling. God can work miraculous things to accomplish his purpose. Or he can just send you. We are commanded to take whatever it is we have, five loaves, two fish, and do the work of the Lord. But it's not enough. That's true. But I don't know. It defies my ways of thinking about the world. That's true too. We do what God has told us to do. And guess what? All the rest of it is God's problem. And guess what? God is perfectly capable of dealing with his half of the problem. But it may not work out the way I want it to. That's true. You may be stuck in a boat in the middle of the night trying to row across the water. I could be in a boat for a long time. But guess what? That's God's problem. Your problem is to do what God has instructed you to do. Your problem is to take whatever it is that God give, has given you, a little bit, a lot, doesn't matter. Some young boy decided to tag along with his family to see Jesus out in the middle of nowhere. And all he did was grab a snack on the way out the door. God used that snack to feed 10,000 people. Hmm? 20,000. All we know is there were 5,000 men. <laughs> what does God want us to do? Well, I know the answer, but then I don't know the answer. I know the answer is whatever he tells us to do. But what does that look like for you and for me? I don't know. God will tell you. That's his problem. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your miraculous events. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have faith and look at you and not the storms. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.